Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is first-time author Anita Morjani, whose riveting memoir is called Dying to Be Me, My Journey from Cancer to Near Death to True Healing. After four years of fighting lymphoma, Anita was admitted to hospital in a coma with total organ failure. While in this state, she had a near-death experience that gave her such insight into her true power and her disease that she was able to reverse it within weeks to become cancer-free. Her medical condition and miraculous recovery are so well-documented and the implications so profound that I believe this book could, or at least should, have a major impact on our understanding of diseases like cancer, on the practice of medicine in general, and on the nature of reality and of death. So welcome, Anita. I have so been looking forward to this. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much for that wonderful welcome. It's such a pleasure to be here. Anita, I saw you on Wayne Dyer's PBS special. He himself had a miraculous recovery from leukemia, and he was instrumental in getting your book published by Hay House. Tell us about how that connection came about. Yeah, that was quite incredible because a lot of synchronicities had to take place for that to happen. Um, I started by writing about my experience on the Internet, um, mostly for cathartic reasons. It was really helping me just to get it out, and my husband would encourage me to write. And then what happened is that on the Internet, my story went viral. And at that time, I was just writing as Anita M. I didn't even give my full name. And after, and I built up a little bit of a following, and people were just emailing my experience all over. And then Wayne Dyer, who doesn't even surf the Internet, uh, somebody actually gave him my story. Someone printed it out and gave it to him. And the thing is, people give him things all the time. So he, at first he wasn't even going to really read it. He put it aside. And one day he was just clearing his desk, and he almost threw it away, but he thought he'd just look at it to see what it was before throwing it in the bin. And he started reading it, and he said he just couldn't put it down. Mm-hmm. And then he contacted Hay House, and it, who were his publishers, and he told them that they must track me down. And they have to tell me that if I'm planning to write a book, that they will publish it and he, Wayne Dyer, would write the foreword. And and that and Hay House sent me an email and that email arrived on my birthday last year, (laughs) one year ago. So that was quite an incredible birthday present. (laughs) (laughs) Well, happy birthday. You know, I've I'm not surprised at all because I've read about many NDEs, but your near-death experience has been classified as an exceptional one by the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. Yes. What What does that mean? Well, they have uh, they have the um, they categorize the NDEs that come in, and um, and then. They just they wrote to me and they said mine was an exceptional and I think just the top few what they consider the top few percent which they almost can verify that really took place because some of them they categorize as just um, spiritually transformative events and some that they uh, they classify as a possible NDE. But in my case, probably because it took place in a hospital and maybe because about the details I provided, 
they said it was an exceptional near-death experience. Yes, your, your, when you talk about the details, um, I mean, your case was documented by medical doctors extensively. Uh, there's just no denying the reality of what happened. So tell our readers a bit about your background and what was going on with you around the time you were diagnosed with cancer. Okay, well... I, uh, I grew up in Hong Kong and um, went to a British school, but my parents are Indian, they're Hindus, and Hong Kong is predominantly a Chinese society. So as a child, I always felt that I never belonged anywhere because I didn't feel like I totally fit in in any of the, those cultures because I was affected by all of them. But as an adult, um, I my best friend she was diagnosed with cancer and that actually created a lot of fear in me and also my husband's brother-in-law was diagnosed with cancer but even up to that point I was always pretty fearful about things in life I always approached anything in life from the perspective of fear um, for example whenever I did anything for myself uh, like say if I was taking care of my health it was more from the perspective of a fear of getting ill rather than a value of my health or my body or, or myself or my life. And that was the case with everything I did. Mm -hmm. um, it was also, I was also always trying really hard to fit in. So I was a little bit of a people pleaser. Uh, I was always trying to work hard at being accepted, at being liked. I, I, I thought that I had to work hard at being more spiritual or being a better person. And, um, and in the same way, I thought I had to work hard at maintaining good health. And so for me, life was always a struggle because every decision I made was made from a fear of not being good enough and having to work hard at attaining whatever I wanted. And... Mm -hmm. So what happened when you were diagnosed with cancer? What was your reaction and what kind of treatments did you have? When I was diagnosed, of course, the fear uh, was became exacerbated. But uh, it was almost like, in my case, I almost expected to get cancer because to me it felt like the world was such a fearful place and everybody around me is getting cancer. And I just sort of felt that... Um, that one day it'll be my turn as well. And so when I got the diagnosis, it was almost like I, ex I expected it. Although, of course, I was extremely fearful about my cancer. And because I was watching two people um, getting conventional treatment before my eyes, and they were not improving, both of them were dying, and both of them were getting treatment in the best cancer institutes, one of them in New York, one of them in Hong Kong. My best friend was in Hong Kong. Um, and they were getting the best cancer treatment that money can buy. And yet I watched them deteriorate rapidly. So and initially I refused conventional treatment because I felt it just doesn't work. It, um, the health of both of these people are deteriorating regardless of what treatment they are having. So I opted to go for, um, for more natural treatments. Mm -hmm. And you beautifully conveyed your confusion when you described the conflicts between Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine and Western medicine. Tell us about your trip to India, what happened to you, and then your relapse. 
When I went to India, um, I was uh, actually, I felt really, really positive because um, I started to do yoga under a yoga master and also I was following an Ayurvedic diet. And and the yoga master even said that um, that cancer is not an illness. All illnesses are just imbalances of the body. So let's not focus on the illness. Let's just focus on balancing your body. And I felt really good about that. And um, and so we just worked on um, balancing my body. And then I was I was doing a lot of yoga, and I was um, doing uh, I was following the Ayurvedic diet, which is predominantly vegetarian. And so I was doing yoga. I was waking up at six in the morning and doing yoga in the morning and last thing in the evening. And I was meditating. And and so I was doing this for about six months. And I felt absolutely great at the end of it. Um, and and I was learning this whole new way of being. And, and so <clears throat> I felt I was healed. And when I was ready, I flew back to Hong Kong. And a lot of people remarked on how well I was looking. And they'd, and they'd never seen me look better. And, um, but slowly my, you know, as I watched again, my friend who was still getting sicker and people started to ask me things like, so, um, how have you been treating your cancer? Have you had gone for another check? And I said, no, I don't need to go for another scan. And they would say, no, you do need to don't let it go like this. Look at what's happening to your friend. Um, the fear all started to come back again. And when the fear came back, I felt my health stopped to deteriorate. And when my friend passed away, I was just, uh, oh, I was beside myself with fear completely. I just felt that, um, that this cancer really does kill you. And, and I think in hindsight, I feel at that time when I felt the fear, I should have gone back to India. But instead, I started exploring other ways because things that people were saying was starting to affect me and get to me. And uh, so I I did start to go for the scans, and then I started to look at Western naturopathy and Chinese traditional medicine, all of which contradicted each other. And that made me even more confused and even more fearful because, again, I just felt I, I didn't know which way was the right way. And each time I did, I, I followed, if I followed Chinese traditional Chinese medicine, it contradicted Ayurveda. And then I would be fearful that I'm doing this wrong in the Ayurveda standard. And so I just became really confused again. Well, I'm sure a lot of people can resonate with that. Yeah. So you, you went downhill, you fought this cancer for about four years and you ended up um, in a wheelchair down to around 90 pounds. Yeah. Um, in fact, yeah, I was down to about 84 pounds and, um, my muscles had completely wasted away and I had open skin lesions. Um, I was on a portable oxygen tank. I was still staying at home, but I was going in and out of hospital for treatments. And, um, I had a full-time nurse at home who was caring for me. Uh, and, um, and then, Around December of 2005, the doctor told my husband that I had maybe three months at best. Mm -hmm. But um, about six weeks later, on February the 1st, um, I, I remember the nurse was there and I was really, really uncomfortable. I hadn't been able to sleep because my lungs were filled with fluid. And every time I lied down, 
I would stop choking and coughing. And I was very, very uncomfortable and in a lot of pain. And I told the nurse to give me an extra dose of morphine so that I could get some sleep. So she gave me, um, she, she injected the morphine and then she went off for the night. And, um, and the next morning, February the 2nd, I didn't open my eyes. And when my husband woke up, he saw that my, my body had like completely swollen up and my arms were swollen, my legs were swollen, and he called the doctor right away. And the doctor knew immediately that that was a sign that my organs were now shutting down and I was dying. And he told my husband to rush me to the hospital right away, which, which they did. And they rushed me to the hospital. And then the, when, I, when I was brought into the hospital, there was a team of doctors there waiting for me. And the first thing one of the oncologists said was that it's too late. It's too late to save her. You brought her in too late. But what nobody else knew was that I was aware of everything that was going on. I, it was like I had woken up in, a, in another realm. And I was feeling amazingly light and, and liberated and, and peaceful and, and beautiful. The description that you give in the book of this state is is so transcendent, so poetic. Um, I just want to say to anyone who has just joined us that we are speaking with Anita Morjani about her book, Dying to Be Me. And don't change the dial. This is an amazing conversation. So, Anita, um, you as you said, you were in a coma and yet you were able to see everything around you, even in, in other rooms. Tell us, yes. tell us what you were seeing and sensing. I was um, aware of everything the doctors were doing, everything. I was also able to feel what they were feeling and I was feeling what my husband was feeling. My mother was there. I was able to feel what she was feeling and they were having conversations outside the room but I was aware of it you know I didn't even realize I was in a coma I just I thought I was just wide awake and more alert than normal because I was so aware of everything um, every procedure the doctors were doing I was aware of but also I felt as if I was like um, encompassed by this this feeling of what I can only describe as unconditional love but but even the word love doesn't do it justice. It it was just um, it was just this incredible, peaceful feeling. It was like for the first time in my life, I felt like I belonged, like I had come home, and like as though I I now felt completely accepted, and my struggle was finally over. I felt free and light and liberated. It was just. It's really indescribable. <laughs> a, a lot of people, when they describe their own NDEs, talk about this feeling that uh, very similar to what you're describing and that they really didn't want to come back. Why did yes. you decide to come back? At first, I didn't want to come back. It was a really tough choice, a really, really tough choice. And then I, I became aware of my, my father and my best friend, and I became aware that... Um, the ones who had died. The ones who had died. My best friend had 
passed away and I became aware of her presence. And my father had passed away about 10 years before this experience of mine. And, and he was there in the other realm, his presence. And, and I, you know, I completely became, uh, I became emerged, uh, I merged with his presence and during my life, my father and I hadn't all, had not always seen eye to eye because um, I always felt I was not meeting his standards. I was never good enough because he wanted me to be a good Hindu girl and have an arranged marriage. And, you know, and I never, yeah, I never, uh, I used to defy him and, and I was, I used to rebel against his values. And so we never really met eye to eye during life. But in this realm, I just, all I felt from him was just complete, pure, unconditional love. And, and I just completely understood that everything during my lifetime, all his expectations and everything came from his own cultural conditioning. It's not how he felt about me and he loved me unconditionally, but he was a victim of his own culture and his own fears about uh, what he wanted for me in life. And all I felt was that Underneath all that was just unconditional love. And it's as though our culture and everything is part of the physical life. It's, it, we don't take that with us when we're in the other realm. Mm -hmm. And all of that comes from our fears and our cultural conditioning here in physical life. Um, and um, um, sorry, I forgot the question that you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you decide to come back? Oh, yes. And... Um, so at first, um, so I then realized, I reached a point where I realized that I had a choice whether to come back or not. And if I went any further, I couldn't turn back. And of course, at first, I absolutely did not want to come back because, because of my sick body. I mean, the sick body wasn't good to me and it wasn't good for anybody around me. Um, but then my father actually impressed upon me that it's not my time. Um, but even then, even though it wasn't my time, I still didn't want to go back, you know, and, and I still got the feeling that even though it's not my time, I still had the choice. But then the next thing that seemed to happen was that I felt this amazing clarity where I just felt that I understood everything. I, I understood why I had the cancer. I understood how my life had reached this point. It was like I saw my life as this incredible tapestry where everything just made sense and my life was like a like a thread that was woven in this tapestry and I could see where my life touched everyone and everything and and I understood that that I or all of us are just amazing magnificent human beings and and that I had never realized it before. I'd never realized that my only purpose was to come back and express myself and just express my own magnificence. And then I seemed to understand that my father and my best friend were impressing on me that now that I know the truth of who I really am, I should go back and live my life fearlessly. Mm -hmm. And I understood that if I did that, and now that I understood why I got the cancer and I understood that if I came back and chose to come back into my body my cancer would heal very rapidly and and I just seemed to understand that and 
So I, I understood. Um, it was like the clarity was incredible. And, and time... Just, just expand a little bit about why you think the cancer started in you. The cancer started because I led a life full of fear. And this is what I truly believe, that my cancer was caused by all my incredible, incredibly powerful fears. And because I never allowed myself to express who I truly am. I never allowed the magnificence of the true me to come through. And it was completely suppressed because of all my fears. And well, it, it wasn't suppressed. It was actually rechanneled against you. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. You have really understood. Thank you. It was rechanneled as cancer instead of being channeled as the magnificence of who I'm supposed to be. And there are some people nowadays who are saying that cancer is really um, your body's way of getting your attention and telling you that you're not living your life as you should be living it. Exactly. That is absolutely exactly how I felt. It was my way, uh, my body's way of getting my attention because um, people feel that the cancer nearly killed me, but I actually say my cancer saved my life. Mm -hmm. It actually saved my life. It, it actually really got my attention. And even when I wanted to know how can I get such an aggressive, you know, how can the cancer spread so aggressively just because I didn't express myself? And that's when I understood that that, that was just my own power, my own magnificence or the power or the force turned inwards rather than outwards. It, it had turned against me rather than out into the magnificent being that I was supposed to be. So when you decided to come back, you realized that you could use this exact same power to heal yourself rapidly. And exactly. that's what you did. Exactly. I realized that channeling it outwards and towards the healing would, would heal my body rapidly. And that was exactly what I understood. And I knew that I would see the results, not in months or even weeks, but in days. And I knew that. And I came, so when I started to come out of the coma um, and I started to tell everyone, they all thought I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> what was the, the reaction of the doctors? Stunned, absolutely shocked. First, they were stunned that I was waking up. But they thought that, you know, but even though I was waking up and I was opening my eyes, they still knew I was very, very, very sick. And the doctors were being really, really cautious. But, um, but I blew them away because within two days, I wanted them to remove the oxygen tube. And um, within four days, um, my tumors had shrunk by about 70%. Wow. Just visibly they could see them shrunk by 70% and the doctors were really stunned and and I had these um, open skin lesions which the doctors had said I would need reconstructive surgery because they were huge gaping wounds one on my neck one under my arm um, and they said I would definitely need reconstructive surgery because they were so huge and my body didn't have the nutrition to heal mm. but Within um, three weeks, they started healing on their own because the doctors had said, we'll wait till you're stronger and then we'll get the reconstructive surgeon to come and, and, and heal and, and fix them and operate on them. 
um, but you're too weak right now for any form of surgery. But they never needed to do that. And in three weeks, they started healing all by themselves. And um, I love the story of when you went for the CAT scan. The, the doctor wanted to do uh, a biopsy. Tell us that story. That was interesting. <laughs> that was that was actually quite funny because they um, so the oncologist wanted to uh, do a. Uh, do a lymph node biopsy so that they could see the progress of the cancer. So they sent me to the radiologist um, to mark a lymph node. And he had all these, all the scans, my previous scans up on his whiteboard. So he knew exactly where to look for the, um, uh, for the swollen lymph nodes and the tumors. So as he was looking in my neck, uh, around my neck, he started to look confused. He was moving the um, the ultrasound machine. He was moving it around my neck, and um, he he couldn't. He, he was really looking confused, and he wasn't saying anything. But I kind of suspected what was going on. So I said, "What's wrong?" And then he just sort of went, "Hmm. Um, do you mind if I if I look down your back and and you know under your arms?" And I said, "Sure." So then he still continued to look confused as he was looking, and then he said, "Excuse me for a minute." And then I heard him go to the phone and speak to my oncologist. And he actually said, I can't find a lymph node big enough to even suggest cancer. And I was, I was so happy. As soon as I heard that, I just sat upright on the, on the table. And um, when he came in, I said, I said, I heard you. So I guess that means I can go now. And he said, no, not so fast. Your oncologist wants me to mark a lymph node, any lymph node, <laughs> because they don't believe the cancer can disappear like that. It's in there somewhere and they're going to find it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I had the biopsy done and they couldn't find any, uh, any cancer. And they, they sent it to two different, um, two different labs to get it checked and they couldn't find anything. And then they even did a bone marrow biopsy, which was very painful, mm -hmm. and they still couldn't find anything. It's like they were just so reluctant to let you go out of the medical paradigm. They really were, because even when I said, uh, when they came in, they said, um, uh, with, supposedly with the results, and they said, it's a little bit disturbing. And I, I was really concerned. I said, why? And uh, they said, because we need to know the progression of your cancer so we can adjust the drugs accordingly, but we can't find the cancer in your, in your bone marrow or your lymph node. And so my husband said, doesn't that mean that she doesn't have any cancer? It's gone. And they said, no, that's not possible. It can't go that quickly. We just need to find it. <laughs> that it really is amazing. Yeah, it's, it's funny. And it's funny that that was disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> You actually had one doctor come from the United States to review your records. Yes, because he couldn't, he just couldn't fathom what had happened. He, um, two people had forwarded him my my story. This was after I wrote about it on uh, on the NDE website, mm -hmm. and um, and they classed it as an exceptional. NDE. And so two people sent a link to my story to this oncologist who's based in LA who studies um, spontaneous remissions. He's trying to understand what it is that triggers spontaneous remissions. So when he read my story, and in fact, when the second person sent it to him, he uh, is when he, he read it because then he felt there must be something there. He was 
he was so fascinated by it that he called me. But he was skeptical because he just thought, oh, this is a story on the Internet and anybody can post anything. So he tracked me down and phoned me and he said he started asking me some questions and and uh, verified. And I, and I gave him the answers. And then he said, can you um, send me some copies of some of your hospital records? And I said, sure. So he told me what it was to look for. So I got copies of the pages he asked for. And uh, I'm, and I sent them to him. And when he got them, he called me and he said, what you've sent me so far is really scary. Whichever way I look at it, you should be dead. And he was so intrigued that he actually flew to Hong Kong, went to the hospital where this happened and went through my medical records just to just to make sure it really was all true. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, he was, you know, he, by his own admission, he says he started out a skeptic, but was so convinced that he even told me, he said, you've got to write a book about this. And if you write a book, I will provide you with the, with a medical report um, to, to mm-hmm. include in it so that people don't challenge you, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, which is what he did, which I've included in my book. <laughs> well, if you've just joined us, uh, we're speaking with Anita Morjani about her book, Dying to Be Me. I'm Miriam Knight, and this is New Consciousness Review. So, um, Anita, what? tell us about how your relationship with yourself changed. How did you actually let go of self-judgment? <laughs> um, what? Uh, well, how it changed was that one of the main things I realized in that state was the most important thing that we carry through is our feelings, not not what's in our mind or our brain, but our feelings. And and I understood that that is my the doorway to my truth or who I truly am. So that means. Um, it's so much more important for me to feel good and to feel joy and to do things that bring out these emotions and these feelings in me rather than do things from a place of what I think I should do or what other people think I should do. And that's one of the biggest things I realized, that life is about doing what feels good to me or to you, you know, each of us doing what feels good to us, not what we think we should be doing. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about, you know, getting high or or whatever. We're talking about something a little more substantial. I take it. Yeah. Well. Okay. The um, perhaps an easier way of saying it is that the most important thing I realized was how important it was to love myself. Uh-huh. And that's, yeah, and that's something I never knew before. That um, I always thought that to love myself was selfish, it, that it was selfish to love myself. And I always had to put other people before or ahead of me. But in that state, I realized that I had never learned to love myself and I had become drained from constantly giving and giving other people without giving to myself and without loving myself. And I realized that if I don't love myself, I don't actually have anything to give anyone else. I'm just performing at being selfless, but I'm just doing it because I believe that it's the right thing to do. But if I love myself... And if I'm always feeling self-love, 
then just being myself makes me loving to everybody around me. Then I'm just being love. I'm not performing. I just am. And if I am love and if I love myself, then all that anyone can get from me is love because that's all I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. So it's charging your batteries. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. What is your view of the ego and the spiritual growth? I think the ego is very much a part of us. And I think that when we believe that we have to get rid of the ego, uh, we create an imbalance within us because what happens is that then we start to focus far too much on the ego and we focus too much on needing to get rid of the ego. And what we end up doing is actually putting a lot of importance on the ego. But if we can just embrace and love the ego as a part of who we are, then we find that even when the um, egotistical side of us rears its head, it comes and it passes and it goes. And um, because the ego is what gives us our individuality. In the other realm, it feels as though we're all one, that we're all connected. And in the other realm, we don't have an ego. Um, And it's like we're all connected and... I could feel what everybody else was feeling. And and over here, the ego kind of protects you and it gives you your individuality. And if we try to deny the ego or uh, judge it all the time, uh, we find that that creates an imbalance. On the other hand, uh, if, we, if we are too attached to the ego and too identified with the ego that creates an imbalance as well. That makes us not realize that we are far more than our egos. So, so this goes back to what you were learning in India, to bring, bring yourself, your spirit, your body into balance. Bring it into balance, yes, because it's all important. Even the ego is important as well as the greater consciousness part of you. That is, it's, it's also important to become aware that we are so much more than our ego. The ego has a purpose, but we are a lot more than our ego. Right. So has all of this influenced your view of karma and past lives? Definitely. Because when I was in India, actually, the views of karma and past lives was very strong. But my near-death experience has kind of changed that. Um, I, I now understand there's no judgment in the afterlife, because even karma is a form of judgment. And... Judgment and always coming from a place of judgment is what creates a lot of fear. And uh, so I don't believe in bad karma. I I think of the word karma now more in terms of just a balance. There's no bad or good. It's just a form of balance that you go too far one way, you kind of have to adjust and go the other way a little bit. Um, In terms of reincarnation... Um, I don't view time as linear anymore, at least not when we're not expressing through our physical bodies. Because when I was in that near-death experience state, it felt as though everything was happening simultaneously. Whereas reincarnation suggests linear time, one lifetime after another. I felt I became aware of other lifetimes, but it felt as though it was happening simultaneously, then and there. How has this experience uh, affected your uh, perception of source or a divinity? Do you, and do you think it was instrumental in your healing? 
Yes, I do think it was instrumental in my healing because I now realize that um, what we call, we can call it source or God or anything, that it's not separate from me. It's not a separate entity or a separate being. It is who we are at our core. We all are. We're all connected. We're all one. And we are all facets of this one or this universe or universal energy or God or whatever we want to call it. But at no time am I or are we separate from it. We are it. That's a kind of a difficult concept to wrap one's mind around, the, the, the idea that we are one. Can you ex- how, how did you explain that for yourself or was it really more at the feeling level? Well, it's um, in that realm, it is a feeling level because that's basically what we rely on in that realm is our feelings. And, um, and because the physical separation that we feel here in this realm is exactly that. It's physical. We need our physical bodies and our physical eyes, and we have this physical separation. You and me are physical entities. But when when I was no longer expressing through this body and no longer using these eyes, um, I just became pure awareness, which is kind of like, well, I spilt, it was like just spilling out of my body. And so there's no limitation. There's no boundaries. So there's no, when you're not expressing from your physical body, you have no boundaries and I have no boundaries. And so literally I became everybody and everything. It was like um, I could feel everything they were feeling. There was no physical boundary for, for me. And was it just the people in your who, who were attached to you in one way or another, or could you reach out beyond to other people? At that time, it was the people who was who were um, attached to me, but distance didn't um, distance was not a bar because I was fully aware of my brother who was on a plane from, uh, coming from India to see me, and um, he knew that something was wrong and. And I was actually just able to become completely aware to see him uh, physically coming to see me when just a couple of days prior to that, I'd spoken to him on the phone and um, I had told him that, oh, he didn't need to come because I I didn't think I was dying just yet. Or, I mean, I, I didn't, I was in denial about how sick I was. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, but he sensed it was a lot worse, and so he got on a plane. And so, when I was in the near death experience realm, I was I became completely aware that he was on the plane. Mm-hmm. And has, has this extrasensory perception persisted beyond the experience? Yeah, yes, but um, it's a lot less than it was within that when I was within that experience, but definitely more than before I ever had the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed a lot more synchronicities, a lot more things happening because I've noticed that I don't, I don't have to pursue things anymore. And that's, that's one of the biggest things I learned as well was that, um, I don't have to go, go out and go after things that I just have to be myself and just allow whatever comes to me to come. Now that is a lesson that we could all take on board. <laughs> what is your take on evil in the world? 
I think everything like that stems from fear. I think what we classify as evil or what we label as evil is actually at its root, it's always fear. I, I think that if people were, uh, did not have fear and if they loved themselves, if they were self-actualized, happy people, they would not hurt anybody else. I really believe that. Mm-hmm. I was very impressed by your statement in the book that you don't feel the need to change anyone else, let alone the world. Can you please expand on that? Sure. I feel that going out and changing people or the world, again, comes from a state of judgment and fear. And what it does is it causes people to fight back. And that's the problem we have in the world today, is that anybody that who feels they need to go out and change the world is doing so because they think the rest of the world should be like them. And so all that happens is everyone else fights back. The other thing also this, um, is that I feel that because we're all connected, I only have to go internally and make changes within me, and that will touch other people anyway because we're all connected. Mm-hmm. It was interesting when you were talking about the ego uh, as being necessary for our incarnation. I, I just had this image of of artists and, and plumbers and, you know, this is the way we we create our own special little creation in the world. And we're all kind of stumbling ahead trying to find the best way for us. And it's it's interesting that you viewed your disease as a gift because it gave you really a new lease on life, hasn't it? Yes, it really has. I really do view what happened to me as a gift, and I think that um, one of the one of the things that medicine does, which I disagree with, is that we think in terms of um, of disease as something that's that's happened to us as though something has entered us from the outside. It's happened to us and now we have to get rid of it. We have to fight it. And, and it's like we wage war against disease. We wage war against cancer, but I don't see it that way. You know, I kind of look at it as what is this disease? What is it trying to tell me? And, uh, and, and, it's um, it's not something external. It's my own body's way of trying to express something, and I just have to listen to it. You know, that's so interesting because I um, re- reviewed a book called uh, The Secret to Healing Cancer by Dr. Tiansheng Su from Taiwan, actually, who um, said in his view there were two reasons for getting cancer. One was arriving at a state of hopelessness, mm-hmm. which is very much like what you were saying about fear. Mm-hmm. And the other is very much like what you were saying about creativity. He said it's it's the creative urge of the individual that has no other outlet being turned against the individual in order to get its attention. Yes. Yes. And I agree with both. <laughs> It's so interesting that that this information seems to be coming together at this time. Do you do you have any sense that um, the medical establishment is going to pay attention? I hope so, because that is actually one of my purposes. I mean, 
I would really like to get the attention of the medical establishment because I feel that right now everything we do in terms of um, finding a cure for cancer, all of it is, all the money that's spent is just looking for a cure from, uh, from a drug perspective, developing drugs or developing tools that are just to either to find the cancerous cells and to diagnose, you know, we're just developing diagnostic tools to find cancer earlier and earlier, but nobody is actually questioning why are we getting the cancer. Nobody's looking in the direction of the emotional connection between cancer and the emotions. And I actually feel the answer lies there. I really do believe that. And I think that when we... Um, understand it. I'm not claiming to have the answers, but I do believe that that's where we need to look. And I really think that a lot of healing can take place if we if we change direction where mm-hmm. we're looking. Mm-hmm. What practical advice could you give others for staying healthy? I would say, first of all, is to learn to love yourself, to be less judgmental of yourself, uh, Don't believe that it's selfish to love yourself because, in fact, it makes you a lot more selfless and a lot more generous and a lot more giving when you really, truly love yourself. Uh, People who are more selfish or egotistical, it's because they don't love themselves enough, not the other way around. So we've got that upside down. Um, And I would also say find your joy and do what makes you joyful. Absolutely find what makes you joyful. Learn to laugh. Laugh at yourself. Don't take life seriously. Don't take yourself seriously. And um, eat chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Life's uncertainty. Dessert first. (laughs) Um, And what... Part of your near-death experience um, most impressed you, most surprised you. What would you want to uh, impress upon our listeners? Um, the fact that we are all connected, and each one of us has a much greater impact on the whole planet than we realize, and. Uh, and that means everything that's going on on the planet. You know, it's it's not about us and them, and that they and that we live in a pathologically scary world. It's it's not that we have become pathologically fearful, and we can make that change within ourselves. The only place where we can make a change is within ourselves, mm-hmm. and, and and that's all we need to strive for. And and we can change the world. Oh, wow. Anita, where can people connect with you or find out more about you? Uh, They can uh, log into my website, which is anitamorjani.com. Spelled A-N-I-T-A-M-O-O-R-J-A-N-I.com. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) and are you going to be uh speaking anywhere soon yes in um next month april 14th wayne dyer will be featuring me as a guest on uh, in his i can do it conference in atlanta great great yes you you have a really special connection with wayne i i could see that 
And, and it, it was fascinating because if people don't know, Wayne had leukemia and he went to see John of God and also had what I would call a miraculous healing. So absolutely, it's all so fascinating. Yeah. Wayne has been amazing on my journey. He really has. And the book has become possible because of Wayne. <laughs> and this book, readers, I absolutely cannot recommend it highly enough. It is beautifully written, riveting. You will not be able to put it down. And it is one of the most life-enhancing and transformative experiences I have had this year. It's called Dying to Be Me, My Journey from Cancer to Near Death to True Healing by our delightful guest, Anita Morjani. So, Anita, I, I just want to thank you so much for, for being you, for sharing your story with us, and for being a, with us here today. Thank you. It's, it's really been a privilege to be here. Thank you. Next week, our guest will be Mirabai Starr, talking about her upcoming book, God of Love, A Guide to the Heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It will be very appropriate to the season, and I hope you will all join us. Well, before we close our show, I would like to put out a plea to the enthusiastic readers among you. If you love to read and can write clearly and would like to build up a library of the most fascinating books at the growing edge of consciousness and share your opinions with the community, we would love to have you join our team of reviewers. You get the first peek at the new books before they're even published, and you'll be providing an important service to the community with your opinion and your guidance. So if you're interested, you can read more on our website at ncreview.com or email us at reviews at ncreview.com. And now we're going to close the show with our track of the week selected by Scott Johnson from among members of the Positive Music Association. They're a growing group of musicians who use music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. This week, we're featuring Coming Home by Brandon Jarrett. Try to 
That was Coming Home by Brandon Jarrett. Brandon is the president of Moho Productions, and it is his passion to provide a positive environment for recording artists where creativity can flow freely and any vision can become a reality. To learn more about him, go to mohoproductions.com. And for more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. Well, that wraps up our show for today. To discover more fascinating books and films, authors and events, check out our website at ncreview.com. And if you enjoyed our show, I hope you'll tell your friends. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>